Welcome to Globally Speaking, your program that explores everything and anything to do with language localization. Are you ready to dive into the most critical issues impacting global brands today? Globally Speaking is designed to educate, inform, and challenge everyone who's engaged in global communications. Your hosts for Globally Speaking are Renato Beninato and Michael Stevens. Learn more by visiting our website at www.globallyspeakingradio.com. And now, here are Renato and Michael. I'm Michael Stevens, and today on Globally Speaking, we started with a special guest as our announcer. Would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, sure. Hi, I'm Aiden Stevens. Aiden Stevens is daughter of myself, Michael Stevens. And Aiden, what do you know about starting a global program, getting something off the ground internationally at a company? I know very little to none. Very little to none. So today's conversation could benefit you a great deal, huh? Yep. Yep. Well, hopefully it will benefit you too. And we will let our guest introduce himself. My name is Daniel Sullivan. I'm the director of localization at Tableau Software. I've been here for a little over three years. I came here at a at a time when Tableau was really just starting to make their big push globally and started out being in charge of building out an infrastructure to help them do that and then build out a team to help execute on that. And then since then, uh, my role is expanded a bit very recently to include things like website content, infrastructure, search engine optimization, and even systems and analytics and things like that. So it's, it's, it's broadening as the, as the program and the team matures, the responsibility levels of what we're, we're covering is broadening. But the real core thing that falls under my team is providing languages services for Tableau and uh, helping us localize the best, highest quality, most efficiently deliverable content to help us go global. In how many markets are you present, Daniel, these days? Well, I mean, we're all over the world. I mean, we've, we do, we've got a presence just pretty much everywhere. Currently, our, our product and our website really focuses around eight languages. That includes English, Japanese, Chinese, and Korean, um, Brazilian, Portuguese, Spanish, German, and French. But really, that is not the limit or the extent of, of Tableau's sales efforts around the world. We really are marketed all around the world. So, And do you have a sense of uh, what markets of those eight that you address are more sensitive to the localization? That's something that's a little bit more recent because, like I said, I've been here for just a little over three years. And when I say a little over three years, I mean just a couple months over three years. So it's not that long. And when I got here, the localization infrastructure, and when I say that, I don't just mean our ability to provide translated content. I mean just the infrastructure as a whole. And that includes even our insights into our markets and, and how well our content was performing. Can you give the categories those fall into for people who may not have read the Common Sense Advisory? You've matured three levels, you would say. So yeah. you're getting close to that like optimizer. Yes, exactly. Role. I mean, we were okay. when we first started this all off, it was it was literally and everyone starts here, even small groups within large enterprises as I have experience with. Where when you're first making your steps into this, you have no infrastructure and and you probably don't even have anyone on your team 
team who who knows how to do this. It's someone usually gets sort of the localization component tacked onto their regular job description. And that's where Tableau was. I mean, they were they were copying and pasting content from their website, putting it in spreadsheets or Word docs, and then sending it by email. And so the first thing we had to do is, you know, address that and put some sort of technology around that, not just to automate the process, but really to control and stabilize it in other ways. And so we made really early investments in TMS and things like that. None of this, I mean, necessarily has anything to do with the gathering of data and the analysis of data. But everything we built from the very beginning was always built with the principle of data first. Like when we invested in a TMS, one of the questions as we were evaluating all the systems was, and will I have access to that data? Because I knew that, I knew just in my experience of working with various TMSs that while they all provide some various level of reporting, and some of them are good, it was never going to equate what I, what I could do with Tableau not just my ability to do drag and drop analysis and ask questions and just start building a dashboard how I wanted to see it, but also then the ability to, to connect that data with other repositories of data where information and, and, and content that was very relevant to what I was doing was going to be stored. For example, our translation management system is really great at capturing data about the the translation workflow itself, where content is in that process, how much it's costing us, how are we delivering on that content? You know, is, are we consistently late? Are we consistently early or on time? That kind of stuff. But project management and overall budget might be captured in a completely different system. And those are just two examples. And, and our infrastructure right now is 20 plus pieces of technology for our localization platform. So as we've added components to this, it's always with, been with the assumption and always with the question, if we invest in this technology, and then how are we going to be able to interconnect the various databases that we're creating in this process and do really accurate reporting? This is a long way of saying that, because Renato, I think you were asking me specifically questions like about what kind of data are you capturing? What kind of insight is this giving you into your markets, et cetera? Those are only things we're really starting to do recently, just because we've been setting up the infrastructure that's allowed us to do that. So, but now we've got really good insight on this. It's getting to be more and more scientific as we go. Lots of really interesting questions, lots of really interesting insights are coming up. And I feel literally like I am, you know, I've been here for three years, but I feel like this is like the beginning of the next story. So. Wow. One of the interesting points, Daniel, is, and it's very interesting because when we talk about maturity, many people associate maturity with technology and with the size of the organization. You can look at Walmart, which is one of the biggest companies in the world, and they're very immature when it comes to globalization. It has nothing to do with size. You can have a very small company that is mature because they understand the role of localization in their processes. And that's the journey that you have described. You've gone from very manual. You might have been technologically immature, but from a business perspective, the management of Tableau understood that localization was important. They gave you that task. And that is the first step in developing the maturity of the organization is recognizing that you have uh, a business problem or a, a business opportunity, let's put it this way, to develop your business by localizing your product. But what I'm curious about is, is what kind of data you've collected that is surprising or unique or something that is unusual. Because you mentioned things like you actually know the cost per 
unit that you're engaging there, but you know it right. as a relationship. Uh, is it is it a pro profitable world? Is it a word? Is it a, a money losing word? What, what kind of insights are you getting? Okay, well, first of all, I want to answer your for the first part of your. It wasn't a question. You were just making a very interesting statement though about how maturity is not tied necessarily back to the the size or even the age of the company. And you mentioned Walmart. And you know, I, I've you know, I've been at other enterprises where very mature, huge global presence, but within the infrastructure, you will have a variety of levels of maturity for localization. I feel very lucky because when I did come to Tableau, I was not presented immediately with questions like, "You need to prove to us that it's worth it for us to invest in this content, and we're worth it for us to invest in these countries. Why are we doing this?" That was never. That was never a problem. They were they were already ready to support me in any way that I needed, and so I'm, I I feel very very lucky that I was brought in and I was hired and I had the support of people like our CMO Elisa Fink and my vice president Wade Tipke from in marketing operations that they saw the value of this immediately, and so I did not need to spend a lot of time trying to prove that, and so we've been able to to reinvest that time then in, in doing other things. And that's allowed us to also focus on building out an infrastructure first. And now we're starting to got, get to the point where the data that all this is capturing is actually finally allowing us to ask these, these challenging questions and finally start to get answers for them. Some of the things that I have found the most interesting is when I was trying to see how Tableau was doing globally with sales, and where that aligned with the, the languages that we were currently invested in. And that has been some of the most interesting things to see. And, but it's, it's never been a question that I could answer with just the simple data that we were capturing in our various systems. I've actually had to, to go out and create some custom databases about country and language use in, in various countries and official languages around the world and things like that, and try and find really creative ways to reconcile that back to the revenue we are generating around the world. So you're using internal data sources of which you guys are pulling, but you're going out to public data right. as well to get that. I mean, there's, but it, it starts to get really fuzzy. And, and, and I'm starting to see that you cannot just make these, what I guess, data-driven decisions or, you know, it's more data-inspired decisions because while you might have the data and it's telling you one thing, you, you also need to be able to like contextualize some of that data or you also need to be able to know that yes the data is telling me this but I know I know why and so I'm going to reinterpret it, those numbers that it's giving me would it be fair to say it helps you increase your odds for success yeah but here's a perfect example where things can get a little fuzzy if you're looking at say website traffic there are a number of ways that you can sort of look at that to try and determine what language people are consuming and maybe what language they're actually, they actually speak. So, for example, Germans. Our traffic from Germany, if I, look at some, if I look at that, if I look at GA traffic or something like that, and I'm looking at something like their browser setting, their browser language setting, a lot of Germans never change their browser setting from the native default English. And so browser setting is not really a good indication of what the person visiting your site, what, what language they might speak, what is their first language. But even the content that they're consuming, maybe they're in German, Germany, they've got their browser set to English, but they're consuming German content. Does that mean they are a German speaker? Does that need, mean they are a native German speaker? Can I attribute any of that traffic back to our investment in German? That's where things start to get really fuzzy and a little bit challenging. 
but it's it's having access to all this data and and at least knowing that it's fuzzy that that's where the real human decision making is going to start coming into play that's where the person's knowledge about countries and languages and things like that that's where that comes into play and and sort of compensates what the data is telling you and you really can't have one without the other and then expect to make really good decisions so it's not just having access to this data it's also being able to understand how to interpret it and actually use it mm-hmm. it's it's looking at data as a decision support exactly system and not as a decision making system exactly exactly Oh, so you can't just rely on it to make decisions for you? <laughs> Crap. <laughs> oh, well, that's good. So one of the things I took away from you summarizing the environment at Tableau is you have multiple data sources. That means multiple tools that you're mm-hmm. working with. So you didn't really go out there and try to find one tool to rule them all. No, no, all. no, 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 no. And that was, again, that was very much a guiding light when I started this process because I did come here with a, with something of a bias for a TMS. And I just mentioned the TMS because that's the very first big purchase we made. But I knew when I was investing in that, I, it had all these other little bells and whistles, but I knew I was never really going to rely on them because what I could do was going to be a lot better. And so then there is one piece of the system that is consistent, and that is Tableau Software. Oh, right. That's yeah. your product. Yeah. There may be some people listening who aren't familiar with what Tableau does. Can you give us this? It's a really intuitive tool that is designed to help people see and understand data. It, it's, uh, we're very much about the, the citizen data scientist and basically empowering not just data analysts. I mean, there's always going to be a place for data analysts. And, and there's always going to be things that the citizen data analysts cannot do. But what Tableau does is enables just literally anyone to connect to any kind of data. And that's just not one data source, but it's also, you know, you can connect to Excel here and then a data extract over here in server and then maybe in a MySQL data server there, whatever. I mean, you're just bringing this data together in a way that helps you then start asking questions and getting in a flow of questioning that data. And the, what the tool does, it just makes it very simple to just adjust your questions as you go. So you might just start out with a very basic question, like how much revenue are we getting in Japan? And that's a very easy, you know, it's just a process of dropping out country and then pulling out revenue, whatever yep. that is. But then you might start asking other questions like, well, what about revenue from Eastern Japan within this, this sector of industry? I mean, whatever. Tying it to geolocation, right. that's one option. And, and it, just, it allows you to start just asking these questions and playing around with the data and starting to get answers from it very, very quickly. Mm-hmm. So you're visualizing data. Tableau has been a leader in the big data conversation. Mm-hmm. That's kind of it was a hot word years ago. Mm-hmm. How would you define big data? I don't know if I've ever really liked the word big data. I mean, when it mm-hmm. first came out, what they were talking about was just the fact that there is all this data, but now it's sort of become this discursive word that is it is just more representing the usage of data in general. And it, it's it it's kind of become a parody too, because I mean, even we've parodied it. Uh, a few years ago, we did an April Fool's about medium data. And mm-hmm. we, we did a whole campaign about medium data. And I remember on one of my jaunts walking through an airport, and one of the best sellers in the airport was small data or something like that. It's like, it's not just big data. It's like, just, just big data is synonymous with access to all this stuff. It's yeah. not necessarily the size of the tables and the, and the, the millions of rows that you do have. Because I think, I think big data is, it, I mean, it can just start with a spreadsheet. I mean, that's where we started. Yeah. We had 
nothing. We had no infrastructure. And so what we, and we had, we did have these multiple spreadsheets that were capturing localization related data in various forms. And so one of the first things I did was, okay, I, I looked at all of that and I said, okay, this is what they've been capturing. This is where it is. We're going to pull this into a very, into a single source we're going to structure this and we're going to start using this for reporting. And the thing we're going to start monitoring with this single spreadsheet is all the projects, the day, the dates, because we had nothing, no infrastructure at all. And so we just, we built something that was structured. We started capturing this data. We started standardizing the way we were reporting and capturing this. And then we threw Tableau on it. Yeah. And now I'm able to finally, for the first time, reconcile costs down to I mean, the penny from month to month. I'm able to now use Tableau to see where all these projects are. Because again, our translation management system was Outlook. Yeah. But now, now I can start <laughs> seeing this. But, and as we started adding tools onto this, then you know, eventually that spreadsheet was retired. And now it's in a structured database. And that database is being populated by the tools. And we've got processes whereby we are ETLing some of this data, meaning we're pulling it out and loading it into something like Amazon Redshift or other repositories. And just and, and as we go and as we add more tools, this just gets more complicated. And again, like I said earlier, it's always been with the with the data first principle. And so as we add these, it's always and what is the key between these two systems? Like what can I use as a key between these various databases to reconcile? But this is a very good point for you to tell us. What is it? What are the core metrics that everyone in localization pay attention to? <laughs> Wonderful question. I don't have the absolute answer for that. I'm actually looking at one of my visualizations I have for, I actually threw all this into database, this exact answer. And I'm looking at it right now and I see I've got 148 different rows of data for, and each of those represents a single metric that I, I want to people want monitoring or I already am monitoring. And so I'm also tracking this and have we, have we answered this question or are we still working on it? The first place that I started was cost. How much are we spending? And then project management. The second place I start, the, the second place I went was our website. I got Tableau on top of our website data. And I, the first questions I had to start answering were how much of this website is localized and what's available in each language? Because when I got here, and this is again part of the story of coming to Tableau and, and its journey into becoming a global company, when I got here, the way that they were deciding on what to translate, because it was very early in the process, was basically like whatever the regions needed. So if, if we published a white paper in English and someone in Germany thought, oh, I need that, can you, can you translate that for me? Then they would translate the page and the white paper into German. And then maybe two weeks later, the French would catch wind of this. They say, oh, hey, can I get that too? Yeah, sure, we can do that. And then they'd run it for French. But what happened was like you know, over the course of a, a year or two is that the website was just partially localized. But the biggest question I had was, how much of our site is localized? Because all the regions saw it as a problem. And it was a problem. And so we put Tableau on top of the website data. And we just started answering this question. And, and that was our primary data source. And those were the primary questions we were asked for the first year was how much of it's localized? How, how many white papers did we, did we publish in German in Q4 of 2015, for example? Because we need that information for our QBR, for the regional QBR, things like that. So we started at that level. Now where we're going, however, is, okay, I want to be able to drill down to a single 
piece of content in a very particular language. So this white paper in Japanese, and I want to know all sorts of information about that one piece of content. Like, what is the, the, the organic traffic that's coming to that page? What is the bounce rate? How many localization bugs have been filed against that content? How many of them were valid? How many of them were resolved? How many times have we run that piece of content this year? And what is the ROI on it with respects to the amount of traffic? So like if you've got a page that has 10,000 organic views in a month and you've only spent $600 to translate that page and you've only run it three times in the year, I mean, you can get down to the point where you can say something like every single unique visit through organic traffic cost zero point zero 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 two three seven cents i mean you can get down to that level now. <laughs> yeah so let's stop here what is a profitable type of content and what what is a waste of money in your practice this is valuable information for me as a marketing guy i feel like we're getting to a point where we are able to start answering those questions now there was something that actually Michael had mentioned to me once. It was a really great piece of inspiration for this because he put a nice acronym around it, Bob Wow, the best of best and the worst of worst, and, and knowing what is the content that's really performing. And so what is performant content? Okay, that's another really great thing to do because that definition is going to change from content type to content type. And it's also going to change, you know, performant from one group is going to be defined in one way versus another. In marketing, we would define performant content by its ability to lead generation, its low bounce rate. It's something that people are consuming that's helping them make a decision to buy Tableau. What about the negative thing? What, what is this, the thing that you found out that was a waste of, of your money and you stopped localizing because it didn't really help? Was there anything like that? I think most of the content for us that has not really, what I would define as being really performant, has mainly been because there wasn't a marketing effort around it. And I think this was something that we, we may have had very early on when you know I was describing that the question was how much of the website is localized, and this is what was on the top of everyone's mind, basically the, the, I guess that the state and the health and the overall coverage that our website provided was very weak. And so our mission for about a year was to just get as much coverage and bring and shore up things as much as possible so that we had a much broader coverage and a better baseline to start with. And I think in the process that in trying to fill out as much of the website with language content as possible, the thing that we weren't doing was then wrapping marketing efforts around a lot of this. And I think that's where the really real difference happens because, and I can see this, I know that just making a product available in a language and just making a bunch of content available in a language, that does not mean that sales go up as a result at all. You still need to put a massive marketing and sales effort around it. Yeah, so that that's what I'm hearing from you that I hadn't thought through, is that the effort to create equal websites globally, mm-hmm. you weren't really saying, wow, we're going to see a big trend upwards in sales because we're now adding more German pages or French pages right. or whatever it may be. What you're saying is, I now have a baseline of performance that's equal to the English mm-hmm. that our marketing team, I'm able to support them so they have better efforts globally. Right. And this is, it's, it's not that we were doing anything wrong initially. I mean, we, we, did, we really didn't have a good baseline for measuring a lot of this. It's only because we actually have started to make this content available that you can start seeing who's engaging with it. So you do kind of have to start at that, 
at that point we're like, okay, here's a baseline, and then now you can start adjusting and measuring and seeing. And this this goes a, a bit against the flow of what we hear from some companies who just say we let the geos decide, right? We let them request and we let them decide what to do with their budget. This this says. That is one option, but there needs to be a baseline right. that I can judge from that that is equal, so right. we can make good global marketing decisions. And, and we do do this. I mean, we do we do have people have the ability to request content from us, and we've been very good. And people have been very good. At, they don't ask for stuff that they don't need. We just do not see that, and we have set it up so that you know when. When a request for a white paper does come to us, it's already coming with that conversation with the regional folks having happened. So when they come to us and say, we need this for these Asian markets and none other, it's because the conversation with the regions has happened. And so we do know that that content is going to get used. Mm -hmm. Do you find that you're reporting into marketing, you're reporting up there to help them improve their marketing efforts. Do people on your team use data differently and Tableau for that matter to help inform you? Are they looking at different questions? Like does the use case vary by role in an organization? Yeah. And that's, and that's part of what I mean in, in answer to Renato's question earlier about what is performant content. I mean, it's, and how many situations that can depend on. For someone in region, a really performant white paper might be something that was, for whatever reason, coupled with an event that they ran. And as a result, you know, everyone was reading that white paper and it, it had some impact on you know, some training that they were doing or whatever. So for them, what's performant might be very different from what I'm monitoring. Because I don't, I don't run campaigns. And so I'm not, I'm not really implementing this content. Other people are doing that. But for me, so that's why for me, something like organic traffic, that is something that I can have some control over. And that, that is sort of a really good measure for, from my standpoint, since I am not running campaigns on content, how well that content is performing. And that's part of the reason why SEO has started to come underneath me as well and be one of our responsibilities because we're actually producing this content. And since we're not running campaigns with it, our metric is the organic traffic. Mm-hmm. I only have one more question. I'm always chasing new stories. And you mentioned that the way that you sell Tableau is through stories. That's the one area where the clients come and find more information about Tableau. Right. It doesn't need to be a localization story, but tell us a good story about big data because I'm tired of telling people the story about the beer <laughs> and the diapers. <laughs> Okay, then I, I do have a story, and it involves our amazing editor for Japanese, Akiko, in our Japan office, and the way she was using data. So I mentioned to you earlier, you know, we had a data-first principles for a lot of the systems that were rolling out, but there, there's been some things that I knew eventually I was going to invest in a tool that allowed me to capture some type of data, but... I wasn't there yet, and I needed something that was going to tide me over until we had a, a really robust tool for that. And so what we did was we partnered with our vendor, and we, we set up a SharePoint site, and we set up various SharePoint lists within there to capture data. Some of it was just capturing data. And one of the things that we did was we knew that eventually we were going to incorporate Taos into our translation workflow. And that we would want to use Taos to do linguistic QA. So you're talking about the DQF, the dynamic quality framework of Taos. Exactly. But a year and a half ago, we did not have the infrastructure to start using DQF. 
And I had other priorities rather than DQF. So, but I wanted to start capturing that data because I did have a, a very, one of my most important questions is what is the quality level of our content that we're getting back from translation? And so what we did was we were already using SharePoint to help our in-country reviewers monitor their projects and record their time spent on projects and how many words they were working on, et cetera. And all we did was we just tacked onto that five extra columns for capturing data on quality. And we made sure that that was aligned with one of the DQF quality models that I was very likely going to invest in or use once I shifted over to Taos proper. And so for a year and a half, we had this system whereby we were capturing data across these five verticals. And so now I don't have Taos implemented yet, so I'm not able to have this really robust and automated and and mature process for linguistic QA proper, whereby you have editors going through content and the only thing they're doing is scoring. They're not editing, they're not changing, they're just scoring the content. Since I didn't have that then, we just used SharePoint in the meantime. And all of a sudden I had all this data on quality for every single project that went through our workflow. And what we noticed during the editorial process, and actually not we, but our Japanese editor noticed, was she felt that there was starting to be a quality issue in Japanese. And all all she had to do was take Tableau, because she had this question, I think there's a quality problem in Japanese. And mind you, she's not the only one doing editing on the Japanese content. There's two other editors she's working with. So, And so what she did was she put Tableau on top of this, this data we were capturing in SharePoint. And she arranged it across these five verticals. And she arranged it by project and date. And she assigned a color to the, the score level. And we were, we're doing on a, a, a scale of zero to four. And so zero was obviously bright red and and four was a bright green and you'd have variations of those colors in between. Well, what she saw for the month of August, and this is last year, was a a field of red. And so she was able to take that and go back to our vendor and say, look, we've got a problem in Japanese. I don't know what's going on, but we've seen a dip in the quality and now we're spending more time editing than we are actually, you know, it's, it's, it's becoming more of a process for us to finish our projects because we're editing more and we need to do something about this. Well, it turned out, sure enough, the vendor was onboarding at that time a new translation vendor for Japanese. And so we had that, but now we were monitoring it and, and watching it. And so we, in addition to this, in addition to isolating that there was a problem and using data to show that there was, we tacked onto this a scheduled coaching meeting once a month with the editorial team and the entire team of Japanese linguistics that were working on our account. And what happened was within, I'd say about two months, that sea of red started to turn very green. And within two more months, we had nothing but a sea of green. Like it was every now and then there was a little drop of red here and there, which there might've been some problem on one of these verticals, but it was a field of green. And it was a beautiful thing. And, and it happened again. Several months ago, it happened again. But it was basically a repeat of the same process. We could see it immediately. We could identify it immediately. We addressed it immediately. And it turned around very quickly. Mm-hmm. But this is a great story because you, you transform something that usually takes too long in the cycle. And you start acting, being proactive instead of reactive. That's fantastic. So what advice, Daniel, would you give the person who's listened to this and been inspired? How do they get started? I mean, you can start with a spreadsheet. 
that's what we did. We started with a spreadsheet and it went from there. Mm-hmm. You do need to start with a plan and you do, you do need to do it with the, with the principle of data first. You do have to go into every single component. Everything that you're adding is, okay, this is going to solve this automation problem and am I going to be able to report on that as well? So asking that. And then you do not start with these really advanced questions like reconciling localization cost back to each and every organic traffic that you get to a certain piece of content. You don't start there. You start with with the money, what's available, how much are you spending. Start monitoring those things very early on. And then you can move on. You can add all the more advanced questions as you go because they're going to come by nature anyways. And the more you stay engaged in the data too, this is another thing I've noticed is the more I've worked with the data, the more I've played with the data, the more engaged I am with it. It's become one of the driving factors for me now as opposed to not just automating things, but then how well are we doing and then showing that performance and using data to do that. So, <laughs> This podcast was produced by Burns360. You can subscribe to Globally Speaking on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. See you next time. Thank you for listening to Globally Speaking, brought to you by Moravia. We'd like to hear your comments, suggestions, and feedback. So until next time, please visit online at www.globallyspeakingradio.com.